Coming up today, we get acquainted with the mutant rats taking over the office you abandoned a year ago and ask a seemingly simple question. Robots, humans or animals? You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Stemperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Banal. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when Apple announced a bunch of new hardware, including newly designed iMacs, a new Apple TV 4K, and four new, no, not four new iPads, just new iPads. More intriguingly, Apple also finally revealed AirTags, its smart little clips that can help you find lost keys, backpacks, pets, or even, if you want to geotag your offspring, children. This was also the week when engineers working with US magazine Consumer Reports found the autopilot feature in Tesla vehicles can be tricked into operating without a driver. This information came to light a day after two men were killed after a Tesla car crashed into a tree and caught fire in Texas. Police believe there was nobody present in the driver's seat at the time of the accident. And this was the week when an Indonesian submarine went missing during a drill. An international search and rescue effort is underway to try to find the submarine, which has 53 crew on board, before the oxygen supply runs out. We hope for a safe return. Do we know how much oxygen they have? I think the, the concern is that uh, Saturday might be when it runs out. So it really is a bit of a race against the clock. Um, it was sort of disappeared during a training drill and uh, there's now an effort to go and find it. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, it will be recovered and everyone will be safe. We hope for good news. Amit, what did you learn this week? So you might have seen the news about Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter, which made the first powered controlled flight on another planet this week. I learnt that there's a piece of the original Wright Brothers plane on board. So a small piece of fabric from the plane, which was the first to make a manned flight in 1903, was taped around a wire on Ingenuity. And it's not the first time a piece of the Wright Brothers plane has been to space. Another piece was flown to the moon and back on Apollo 11 mission, which makes for one very well-travelled plane. I wonder if in thousands of years, when whoever discovers the various things that we sent out into the solar system, they wonder why there's a ratty bit of fabric attached to a helicopter. I mean, there's golf balls and things like that on the moon. There is some We've left some weird stuff on the moon. Uh, there's a great shot of a NASA astronaut from uh, 1970s playing golf on the moon, uh, which is brilliant. I think the clubs and the balls are still up there. There's a list, right, of everything that we've left on the moon. There's bags of poop, there's golf balls, all sorts of rubbish that we left behind. There's all sorts of wonders for someone to discover at some point. Uh, Natasha, what did you learn this week? I learned that scientists discovered a new dinosaur that they believe had an opposable thumb. Uh, they called it Monkey Dactyl. Uh, that is not its real name, though. Uh, its real name, I will attempt now, is called Kung Pengopterus antipolycatus. Anyway, it was a pterosaur with a three-foot wingspan that used to climb trees in China 160 million years ago using its tiny little thumb. I also learned that the catch-all term for dinosaurs' inner fingers is pollux. Not all pollexes are thumbs, but all dinosaur thumbs are polluxes. So there. That's it. That's at least two facts. I feel like Very they're good. quite related. Uh, thumb, 
facts. So There's a lot going on there. I'm very yeah. pleased. Thank uh, you. I'm also very pleased that Wired UK has a new website this week. If you've been paying close attention, you will have seen uh, our humble website update a couple of days ago. So new homepage, new article pages, everything nice and new and shiny. So do please have a click around and get acquainted. Wired.co.uk. And let us know what you think. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our first story this week. Let's have a bit of a think. When was the last time any of us went into the office? Mine was March last year. I've not been back since. July, I think, for me. Yeah, I think Briefly. I popped in in, in the in-between times between lockdown. Um, there was but, a brief yeah. period, right, when, when it was possible. So I, I, remember, I remember leaving the office. So I know Matt Burgess washed up my mug because he went in after me. But I also know that there was a tin of biscuits, a fridge full of food, desk drawers full of God knows what. So what sort of a state was it in when you guys went in in the summer? It was all right. To be fair, it was pretty clean because I think, you know, they'd had like official COVID cleaners in. So whoever the biscuits were, I'm afraid, I think they're they're probably not going to be there when you get back. And it might not have been cleaners, it turns out, Natasha. It might have been rats that's why we're talking about office cleanliness right that's right so everything you might have left in drawers cupboards the stuff in fridge is probably okay actually but that's contributed to a 78 percent surge in rat sightings in british cities during the pandemic this is according to the british pest control association so all of our empty office blocks which offered the perfect mix of warmth and silence have proved decidedly attractive to rats and mice who have set themselves up comfortably in our absence now i'm not to suggest that the british pest control association would give misleading numbers (laughs) on the number of pests that need controlling but it kind of makes sense right so as much of we've changed our behaviour. So have rats, right? So pubs are closed, restaurants are closed, offices are empty, entire city centres have pretty much turned into ghost towns, less so now in the UK. So it would make sense for the rats to have a lot more space and peace and quiet to do their thing. But what confuses me is the idea that office buildings have been taken over by rats. What are they eating? Why is it such a good place for them to be without us there? (laughs) So you would you would think that sort of rats and mice would sort of flee city centres because they'd run out of food, right? You know, everything in, in the drawers. Actually, um, I, I cleared out the biscuits and threw them in the bin, uh, afraid of mice. Uh, so I was the one who, <laughs> <laughs> who did that at, at Wired HQ. But but yeah, that, that is exactly what happened in the initial wave of working from home. The rats followed us home. So you'd have swathes of rats moving to residential areas, following office workers, eating their garbage, um, anything that's left out in, in bins and gardens and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and you're right, while the, the closure of pubs and restaurants removed their usual source of food in city centres, rats, just like human beings, have adapted over the past year. And the difference is rats will just eat almost anything, including drywall, like anything, they'll just nibble through and, and try to find some some nutrients in them. So the, the, the difference between um, our offices and our homes is that um, obviously they're far away from predators in offices it's very quiet um, there's they have free rain um, they're sheltered from the weather which means that they've been using our offices as basically as hubs uh, they can go under walls under floorboards uh, in between sewage systems even in piles of things left on the floor so this means that cities are still rats locations of choice so according to this Leeds headquartered pest control business called pest.co.uk 
very handy. Birmingham is the most invested of UK cities, followed by Newcastle, Leeds, Liverpool and London. So across the country, loads of rats. Good to know. There's something else taking place, right? So we've made some changes during the pandemic, but it turns out that rats are rather better at making changes rather more quickly. So they can have, I found out, six litters a year and up to 12 pups in each litter. So it's easy to understand how a small rat problem can become a big rat problem, particularly if they're left alone for a whole year in the wide HQ. We're not suggesting that our office is infested by rats, by the way. It might not be, but we have no way of confirming. Um, And just as we think we've come up with the perfect strategy of trying to outsmart them, it turns out that rats are either mutating to get around those strategies and make themselves immune to poisons, or they're just quite smart. They'll dodge around a trap or go and hide somewhere else if they think we're onto them. Yeah, that's right. It's it is very easy for that to happen. And, and in fact, they they do do that a lot. So it, I don't know again if Wired UK is infested by mice, but I get the impression it probably is. Everywhere I've worked has been infested by mice or or rats. And and what they do is is I think the worst thing about it is it, when they do eventually die, which sometimes you can't you can't really kill them um, because they're, they're resistant to poison. Um, but when they do die, they die between the floorboards, often in really awkward places. So there's one place I worked where it died underneath an editor's desk, um, this very small mouse, and they couldn't get it. So it sort of got decayed and, and it was just, the smell was just insane. And so he moved desks and he forced someone else that was more junior to sit above the corpse um, until it became a skeleton. So that's that's the story about hierarchies and newsrooms. But yeah, uh, the, the rats specifically during the pandemic have been really, really hard to kill. So experts told us that the genetic mutation that rats are spreading into their own population means that they're resistant not just to the poison that exterminators were using at the early part of the 20th century, but also to the second generation ones, which have been used more recently and are more powerful. This has been going on for quite a while, but exterminators, exterminators don't have enough data in the UK to know for sure how many rats have this mutation and where they are. However, a recent study found that 74% of rats analysed carried a rodenticide, that slips off the tongue, doesn't it, resistant gene. And that's a problem for employers who could open up their offices to discover a huge rat infestation and not be able to do anything about it. So the easiest way normally to get rid of a rat is to find where the rat nest is and the, where the rat runs lay bait and when they have succumbed to the poison remove their bodies but these genetic mutations mean that they just sort of eat whatever um poison or not and um don't don't really care they just keep on running while we're sharing anecdotes about <laughs> rotting rodents when my partner first moved to london about a decade or so ago um feel free to skip forward a few seconds if you don't like stories about rotting animals uh there was a rat problem um in her house the solution um that the company that was sent to deal with it came up with was to see all the rats in under the floors so to block off all of the entry and exit points so that they were trapped then obviously they died started to smell the solution then was to rip up some of the floorboards and throw down a bunch of urinal cakes, <laughs> clear out the rats, and hope that the urinal cakes would um, would, would solve the problem. Uh, as, as she tells it, apparently that just meant that the entire house then smelt like a gent's toilet and rotten rats. <laughs> uh, so not a particularly good win for whatever pest control 
company that was. Okay, so we, we found out that poison might not work, and certainly urinal cakes do not work, <laughs> and some rats are too smart for traps. So this is the Wired podcast. We're all about technological solutions and a bright, better future for us, perhaps not for rats. So how can we use the Internet of Things to kill rats, right? That's what we're all thinking, right? Yeah, so we thought the Internet of Things would unlock a wave of new technological applications and here we are using it to kill rats because you're absolutely right, James. There is, in fact, a rat IoT system which was developed by exterminators Rentokill. It's called like a rodent burglar alarm uh, called Pest Connect and the system which can basically track rats and where they go has identified that rats are most active in UK commercial premises at 12.24am. So yeah, that's, that's a witching hour for rats don't don't go out don't go to the office at that time um, but it uses basically a number of devices which are connected through the internet of things to monitor this rodent activity activate a range of human humane traps and alert a pest controller when a caught rat needs to be disposed of so th- this actually the system actually works uh, the supermarket chain tesco uses the system across its network of warehouses and stores and it says that it allowed it to reduce the amount of poisons that it uses by 40%. But the majority of companies, obviously, will not be thinking of doing this at all and could find themselves fighting a, a losing battle of, of supercharged rats who care not about the Internet of Things <laughs> devices that they set up in their offices. We truly live in a golden age of innovation. Um, now, rats and mites are a slightly different problem, right? I imagine a lot of us have had mouse problems in our homes and mice can get into much smaller spaces. But similar is true for rats as, as well, right? Once you get rid of the problem in your office or in your home, using the, the Internet of Things or not, the end problem that you need to solve, the root problem rather, that you need to solve is how the rodents are getting in and out of the building otherwise they just come back time and time again right yeah so getting rid of their entry points can be a really important part of solving the issue i mean the the, the whole sort of cask of a montelado situation that you had with with the rats in your story won't necessarily work if they can't get out they will just sort of die and you'll have the stench and you have to deal with the stench later on but but basically the, the difficulty is not just that it's also identifying where they can get in they can get in basically anywhere um cracks um gaps in holes gaps in walls gaps in ceilings one pest control expert said the bigger the building the harder it is to make sure there are no entry points but if you don't identify those entry points you will have a constant feed of rats and mice coming in um the good news is uh, for anyone working in a really shiny new office complex is that even though people haven't been going in in the last few months rats are unlikely to have moved in in mass as a species that is really naturally suspicious of humans the sounds and smells of facility managers turning on lights, sending in cleaners, keeping the air conditioning going might have been enough to hold them at bay. So some good news. Hmm. Okay, we're going to be heading back to the office maybe in the coming months. Some people might be heading back sooner or be back there already, depending on what job they work. Everyone is rightly obsessed over social distancing, ventilation, signage hand sanitizers, all of this sort of stuff. But we also need to think about who might have made the office home over the last 13 months, right? We might not be going back to quite what we left. Yeah, most managers won't necessarily have like check to see if rats have taken over the office and their list of things to do before they reopen. There's so much more they have to think about to comply with current government guidelines. But the advice from all pest controllers is very clear. Any employer planning on welcoming staff back soon should sweep their offices for evidence of rodent life first. 
they could be in for a nasty surprise. But after a year of COVID chaos, the last thing organisations need at this stage is an outbreak of rat-borne illnesses like salmonella among their ranks. You might walk back in and think nothing has changed. Everything may look absolutely the same. But if you leave a sandwich crust or a leftover bit of birthday cake, Colin the Caterpillar, out overnight, you'd very quickly see how big of a problem your office has. (laughs) So don't do it, kids. Don't leave food out. (laughs) Not a good idea. sage advice. I I feel like we've got a bit off the rails on the podcast recently. We talked about golf, cheese, rats. Luckily, our next story is is a bit more home ground. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you've got any thoughts on rats, disposing of rats, any particularly fun mouse or rat anecdotes, anything you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week is about robots. Now, we tend to think of robots as being like humans. All you have to do is look at classic science fiction or some of the early efforts by the likes of Honda to build, you know, these humanoid robots. And they were always humanoid with two legs, two arms. If you do a Google image search for AI, you'll be met with hundreds of stock images of, you know, humans shaking hands with robots who have human-like hands. You know, they're just metallic with five fingers and four fingers and a thumb. Um, But actually, that's probably the wrong way to think about robots. In the latest issue of Wired, we've got a great extract from a new book by Kate Darling called The New Breed, uh, what our history with animals reveals about our future with robots. She argues that robots aren't like humans, in fact, that they're more like animals and we should think of them more like the service animals that we live and work with. But why is it that we're so obsessed, Vicky, of considering robots as being human? It's a funny one. We often imagine robots or AI in our own image. I've got a few theories as to why Um, i mean maybe part of it is simply the limit of our own imagination it's very difficult to think of something completely unlike yourself if i asked you to imagine a robot or an alien that was as different from a human being as possible what would it look like how would it act how would it think you'd probably struggle you know we talk about robots and ai in human terms even saying something like oh you know a robot thinks we, we know it doesn't actually, it processes data in a very different way to us. Or we might say a robot sees something when actually it's using camera sensors to interpret data. We sort of fall into this shorthand of imagining it like ourselves, perhaps because that's just easiest for us to conceptualise. There's also, also the fact that we, of course, design these things. So maybe it's unsurprising that we make them after our own image. We think of them like humans because that's how we design them, whether it's the humanoid body of a robot, as you mentioned, Amit, or a processing unit that we build using our own brains as a touch point. And I think perhaps part of it could simply be a bit of a superiority complex. When we think of robots or AI, we think, you know, intelligence, and we think us. (laughs) If I were to ask someone who the most intelligent animal on the planet is, I think most people would say humans. But that's because we judge other things against ourselves. We know that something like an octopus is incredibly intelligent, but not in the same way as us. So if you have a robot that's taking on a job that usually a human might do, we make the comparison because of that, I think. But but actually, if you look at the way robots are used now and re- the way that machinery is used now more generally, not just robots, they're not necessarily doing jobs that humans were doing themselves or jobs that humans have been doing themselves recently. You know, a lot of the tasks that robots and machines are doing are things that were done by animals in the past. Uh, there's a long, long history of going back thousands of years of human anim- humans and animals working together. And actually there's some really like, colourful recent examples of animals doing jobs and now those jobs are being done by robots. 
Yeah, it's actually quite surprising how much we rely on animals in the workplace. And I think maybe we we forget about that. The obvious example, of course, is in agriculture. Historical innovations like the plough completely revolutionised farming. And that was all thanks to animals like horses, oxen. You know, imagine how the history of transportation might have differed if we never travelled by horse. We've long worked alongside animals. And we've worked alongside them in much more unusual ways, too. One great example is military dolphins. It sounds like something out of a cheesy 70s Bond film, but this was real and actually still is. Animals like dolphins and whales have incredibly advanced sonar systems. And even as machines have advanced, they're not as good. So Russia and the US still have marine animal programs. There's lots of other specific tasks that animals have helped us with too a couple of weeks ago on the podcast i don't remember i I don't know if you remember i mentioned felicia the ferret who helped to clean particle accelerators we use things like silkworms to make materials we use leeches as a medical tool a lot of this is still ongoing today and sometimes it's also symbiotic animals use us too if you want to put it that way Uh, we see things like whales that follow fishing boats to find prey so it's not always one-sided Yes. And and what this means is that in the context of the workplace, uh, you know, Felicia the ferret has been, if if I remember correctly, replaced by a robot or they built a robot to do the same job, right? So robots are much much more like these animals and that they're designed to complete specific tasks, unlike a human who has a much more wide range of things that it can do. But there's been still a tendency to anthropomorphize the very fact that the robot's called Felicia and not, you know, F-175 is kind of this, it's this sense that we project our humanity onto these machines and as you mentioned vicky the way that robots are designed often mimics the way the human body is built even if that's not necessarily the best tool for the task you know a lot of the time if you're designing a robot to move around the urban environment making it look like a human makes sense because you know the environment around us was designed for humans so if you want a machine to fit into that environment then human is probably the best shape for it but for certain tasks that might not actually make sense it might not make sense to have a a robot with four fingers and a thumb it might make sense to have something different at the end of its arm that you might not even need an arm you know there's all these kind of considerations that we tend to overlook because we're biased towards thinking of them as humans and this kind of has a knock-on effect on the way that we think about ai and robotics and its role in the world and, and its place in the future Yeah, again, I think it comes down a bit to this inability to imagine a brain unlike ours. And to be fair, I think, you know, a lot of AI and robot researchers and manufacturers have probably fed into this view a bit because, you know, it makes their work seem better, right? So it's a little bit of a problem of their own making in some cases, I think. Um, But when it comes to robots, our assumption that they think like us, I think actually often leads us to overestimate their abilities and perhaps as a result, worry about them too much. You know, we worry about things like robot super intelligence and the singularity, that moment when AI becomes more intelligent than humans. But if you look at the examples that we actually have, the reality doesn't necessarily stack up with that image. There's a great example of a robot vacuum cleaner that ran over dog poo and ended up smearing it all over the house because obviously it's just trained to do its one task to roll around the house vacuuming and it doesn't necessarily notice that it's dragging a whole patch of poo around with it. Or, you know, you could have a supermarket cleaning robot that gets stuck in the aisle every time it spots a tiny leaf or something like that on the floor because, you know, it can't tell the difference between different objects or like what it's supposed to do. It can't adapt its behaviour to every single situation. It just does what it's been programmed to. Obviously, this isn't true of all robots and, and AI is constantly getting better. 
But even when it works faultlessly, it's trained to do a very specific task, which is sort of the opposite of how we function. If you take the AI by DeepMind that can be the best Go player in the world at Go, you could say it's super intelligent in the sense of playing Go. It's more intelligent than any human Go player, but it couldn't transfer that intelligence to a completely unrelated task. Yeah, one of the things that makes humans uh, stand out among animal species is this ability to switch between tasks, you know, this executive function that we have, this ability to go from doing one thing and then apply that knowledge that we've learned from that one task to a completely different task that AIs aren't necessarily very good at. And in reality, we're, you know, we're miles away from the singularity or even general AI. There's a great line in the piece from computer scientist Andrew Ng, who says that worrying about artificial superintelligence taking over is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You know, we're, we're really, really far away from kind of recreating this intelligence that we have. And the fact is that intelligence is complex, right? Robots and animals aren't, you can't think of them as doing worse than humans or better than humans. It's just different, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it really depends on the application. We are already seeing some jobs that humans used to do be automated and completed with much greater efficiency and accuracy. If you think of something like a robot that plants seeds in a row or an artificial intelligence system that adds up a bunch of numbers, they can probably do that more effectively than their human counterparts. But even human intelligence is, in a way, sort of unevenly applied. Darling gives this great example of putting a cat in a cat carrier. And she says, you know, the smartest person in the world will still struggle with that very basic task of getting a cat into a cat carrier if the cat doesn't want to go inside. And she points out that what we consider intelligence isn't also isn't necessarily always a good thing. It isn't necessarily always helpful. She quotes tech developer Maciej Siglowski, who points out that, you know, maybe the human level of intelligence is a trade-off. If we were more intelligent or if we invented a system that was more intelligent, Perhaps it would just sort of crumble into existential despair or spend its all time focusing on these really deep thoughts and not being able to do anything actually useful. But, but that's, a, that's another example of thinking that a machine like that would think of us, think in a human way, that it would even have a concept of despair or you know, existentialism. And I think because we think of robots as being human, it really colours our whole relationship with technology. It, they're framed as human replacements in discussions about the future of work because we think of them as being humans. And it's, you know, in this scenario, it's robots coming to take your jobs. You know, we give them agency and we blame them for these long-term changes that are actually driven by economic demographic forces. You know, it's capitalism, not robots that are going to take your job, right? And actually, if we start thinking of them more accurately, we start thinking of them more like animals, more like tools, I guess. A different, maybe a bit more hopeful picture starts to emerge. Yeah, I don't think too many farmers saw shire horses as an existential threat, right? It was always seen as a tool, as a, as a collaboration between man and animal or woman and animal indeed. And if we think of robots in that sense, it, you know, it's more like, yeah, they are our collaborators. They're, I don't want to say co-workers because, again, that's falling into that trap of seeing them like people, right? Um, but they can help us to complete our jobs rather than necessarily taking them over, which is very much the rhetoric we've seen in recent years. One example that's happening right now is in patent offices uh, where people historically would have to sift through reams of documents to see if someone's application for a patent was novel and if it should be granted. Um, and, you know, there'd be so much information to go through that usually you just end up having to make the best guess that you had in the time limit that you, you could spend on that particular project. But using automated systems can help do that data crunching and just flag the documents that a person might most want to focus on. So it can't make the decision, but it can say, 
hey, you've got, you know, an hour to look through documents, you might want to start with these ones because those are the most important. So it's not necessarily an us versus them narrative. You know, maybe this could actually be uh, a brave new future for both robots and humans. Yeah, and I think an interesting thing about this is that in all these discussions, and this is probably a slightly political point, but we tend to think of jobs being uh, removed as a bad thing. And we tend to think of, you know, people like a job no longer being need to be done, need, needing to be done by a human as being the worst possible thing that can happen. Whereas actually, if you apply it at a grand scale, if we can automate more and more of the tasks that we need to keep society going, then surely that's a good thing on balance. And it's just about adjusting to that change. And, you know, robots replacing humans is not necessarily a bad thing. So there's an example from uh, Qatar, which, uh, you know, has, has had these kind of high stakes camel races where, there was always an impetus to find the lightest weight jockeys they could find to race these camels. And they end up using, you know, children essentially from child trafficking rings as young as three taken to these jockey camps where they were, you know, abused and starved. And it's really, really horrible, like human rights violations. And then in the mid 2000s, Qatar outlawed human riders and basically replaced them with robot jockeys that are controlled remotely. So there's still a, an equivalent number of jobs, essentially, because the, the human is now controlling the the robot but it means that they've gotten rid of child jockeys and replaced them with robots and there's a bunch of kind of jobs that we don't want humans to be doing like exploring nuclear waste sites disposing of bombs you know cleaning sewers in india where robots are actually doing a job that is dangerous for a human and is it's better replaced um it's better to replace them with a robot and maybe there's an equivalent number of jobs in actually controlling the robots or, you know, maintaining the robots or building the robots. And hopefully we can make this transition without leaving lots of people out of work, I suppose. Yeah, of course, you know, that's sort of the vision that Kate Darling in this book presents as, you know, an idealistic view of the future. Robots could save us from drudgery, make our lives better. But of course it is idealistic. And as we've seen with industrial revolutions of the past, the impact is never equal. You know, if you have a job that could be done by a robot, it may be at risk of, of you losing that job. And, you know, there's obviously a much broader economic and political argument here of what could that, that future look like if there is simply less work for humans to do. It's kind of funny, right? Because I think if you ask anyone today, can you achieve more in your job as a result of technology than someone doing your job 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago could do? I think everyone would say yes. But then if you ask them, do you feel like you have less work on them than in the past? I think everyone would say no, right? So there's other factors at play here. And the point is that how robots and AI are adopted in the workplace is not a sure thing. It's something that we have control over to steer the direction that it goes in, or at least business owners and the people making those decisions do, and politicians in a sense, in terms of how we run society. Yeah, I think the point you make about industrial revolutions is really a good one and an important one, Vicky. It's like, you know, over the last 150 years, we've seen a huge improvement in, in people's lives and a huge uh, amount of technology kind of coming in. But actually, the the fruits of that technology have not been shared equally across society. And I think the danger is that with robotics that, you know, we'll, we'll see another similarly large step in technology. But again, if if all that money goes to, you know, two or three robotics companies or, or whatever, or, you know, to the people that can afford to uh, buy these robots, then that's going to cause problems on a societal level. And actually, I think one of the ways that we can change that is by changing the way we think about robots, you know, thinking about them as tools rather than as human replacements or 
just being more aware of their place in society and not kind of projecting these human biases onto them. Um, but I'd be really interested to know what you guys think about this and where you see this debate going in future, James. Can we go back to dolphins? <laughs> so there was some research out this morning that dolphins are able to hold a grudge or what we consider to be a grudge. There's been some research recently about the the nature of how octopuses dream, right? Um, and this whole question of the way that we consider animal intelligence and the way that we then start to consider robot intelligence. I mean, it sounds like kind of a, a philosophical academic debate, but it's really, really important, right? As we start to think about how to improve productivity or how to remove certain jobs that we consider to be drudgerous. If we don't have a clear understanding of the kinds of intelligence we're mapping onto the systems that are going to come in and do them, then we end up repeating the mistakes of the past, right? Which is what gets us back to the Industrial Revolution. And the, the way that that relates to dolphins holding grudges is if you consider them to just be a dumb tool, that's not the case. You kind of You can't consider robots to just be animals. You can't consider them to be humans either. Both are falling into a trap. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's obviously not the case that like robots or artificial intelligence works like an animal brain any more than it is a human brain, right? And I think that's another problem is that if we're constantly designing artificially intelligent systems with, you know, based on the human brain or thinking like how we think, we're potentially missing out on loads of stuff because we understand so little about even the human brain, never mind other animal brains, that there could be something that we could tap into there and make a system that's much more effective at, you know, doing something that actually we are incapable of. Um, so it's definitely like something that I think people need to consider a lot more deeply when designing systems. I think the other point I wanted to make is that, you know, we're designing these systems with a degree of opaqueness built into them. You know, as uh, we use AI and machine learning more and more, it's likely that we're not actually going to know how these systems work, how they process information, right? We, we, in the past, if you programmed a robot directly or a machine directly, you had full visibility over the steps it was taking when coming to a decision. But we've seen huge problems caused by black box AIs and decisions being made by algorithms that are unaccountable and you know unknowable. And actually, what we've done is we've recreated a scenario where these intelligences that we don't fully understand are being integrated into our society in ways that we don't know what the consequences of it are going to be. Not to go all Jurassic Park on you, but I think that's that's the where we're at, right? Which I think brings us back to uh, artificial intelligence systems that are so intelligent that they fall into a spiral of existential despair, right? The the idea that the world that we've built would be so unpalatable to something more intelligent than us that it would just look at us and weep like some sort of god on high. The problem with that is that if, if the science fiction movie canon has taught us anything, that is the next step after existential despair is destroy humanity. So we need to be really careful to keep these AIs happy, James. Otherwise, they could be uh, coming for us. Our days might be numbered. It's the, it's the only good way to truly set us free. And on that cheery note, we'll open it up to you. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What do you think? It's a bit of an intellectual debate, but it's a really, really important one as we start to grapple with these 
massive questions about what the quite near future is going to look like. It's a fascinating piece as well. I do encourage you to go and seek it out. We'll include a link in the show notes and get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. A couple of you have been in touch over the past week. Chris writes in to say that he likes the new format of the podcast. It allows us to go into even greater depths, but he worries, and I paraphrase here, that we're not having enough good banter. Uh, So hopefully we've hit a good balance with rats and robots this week. He says the show's strength is its quality journalism in a low-key, friendly format where your personalities can shine. We'll do our best to make sure that we remain friendly and low-key. Chris also writes in about the paucity of decent vegan cheese, which we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. This isn't entirely random if you're a new listener. He explains that when he first went vegan, he swore off imitation meat and cheese and now reckons the key ingredient to finding them more delicious is distance. He writes, after not eating meat, cheese or its imitators for many months, I pretty much deleted the genuine articles from my taste banks. So upon diving back in, I found myself grateful that I had another food option that I was enjoying, rather than instantly comparing it to something in recent memory. Good bit of advice. If you want to continue the vegan cheese discussion, podcast at wired.co.uk. Amit, we had another email from Nicholas. That's right. He wrote in about the discussion we had recently about golf and Bryson DeChambeau and how his uh, big hitting uh, driving game is basically revolutionising the sport of golf and making it much harder for course designers to, uh, to keep up. He says it made him think about technology in MotoGP, which he's been following very closely for the last seven years, and how small changes in technology can create a big uh, advantage for teams. Uh, MotoGP is a bit like F1 in that the teams have a lot of sway in engineering, and he talks about Ducati. He brought in winglets to increase downforce, uh, and another device called a hole shot, which was brought in by Ducati and is now used by every manufacturer bar two. And it's these kind of small technological changes that can have a really, really big impact on the sport. And I think we tend to think about this in F1 and motorsport because it's really, really obvious and visible. But actually, it's true across all sports. There was, you know, the predator boot in football in the 1990s and all these kind of small changes. Even in sports that we don't think of as technological, like golf, there are big elements of innovation and people pushing at the boundaries of what's possible within the rules. And actually, sometimes even going over the boundaries of what's possible within the rules and this constant cat and mouse game between players and governing bodies to keep the sport within a sort of uh, generally accepted rule range, which I think is quite interesting. Thanks so much for getting in touch. As always, podcast at wired.co.uk. If there's anything on your mind, be it rats, robots, cheese, golf, you name it, do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We'll leave it there for this week. We're off to go and check the floorboards for signs of rat infestations. Have a good week and we'll see you again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you.